Happy Hanukkah and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. Rifki, we are deep in the throes of Hanukkah. There's really no denying it. Mm-hmm. How's your holiday going? Have you gotten any good gifts or gifs? Uh, wow, great question. No good gifs. Uh, feel free to send those over to TalkingTalklessPodcast at gmail.com. Always looking for good gifs. Absolutely. Um, I think the best gift that I got was actually, my friends gave it to me before Hanukkah. They got me one of those like huge canisters of like Godiva hot chocolate. Mm. So I've been treating myself. I've been having a cup of hot chocolate every night and it's been really delightful. What about you? Did Yum. you get anything good? Did you give anything good? Well, actually... We got an amazing <gasps> gift really? that I'd like to announce officially. <gasps> Drive-In Productions has decided to continue its sponsorship oh of our podcast so good for another us. month. Oh my god! So uh, I really can't think of a better gift. And of course, if you're looking for to have a video made, please contact Drive-In Productions. They are incredible. They give us this amazing studio space. Really couldn't ha- more highly recommend them. Yeah, I think they're known as New York's premier film production studio. Absolutely true. So we're going to talk about two topics today. The second one's going to be Hanukkah, so we'll hold off on that conversation. But Uri, why don't you bring us straight into our first segment? Today's first segment is part of our ongoing series, Cover-Ups and Controversies, Talking Tachlis Investigates. The New York Times broke a story this week describing the Pentagon's top-secret program investigating UFOs. The article is titled, Glowing Auras and Black Money, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program. The New York Times writes, The shadowy program, parts of it remain classified, began in 2007, and initially it was largely funded at the request of Harry Reid, the Nevada Democrat who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time and who has long had an interest in space phenomena. Most of the money went to an aerospace research company run by a billionaire entrepreneur and longtime friend of Mr. Reed's, Robert Bigelow, who is currently working with NASA to produce expandable craft for humans to use in space. So Rifki, honestly, I'm not quite sure how to relate to this story. Um, There was the predictable backlash from the right. I saw an article in National Review uh, criticizing, you know, big government and Harry Reid for wasting taxpayer money on his sci-fi fantasies. But I guess the question is... Is this something that the government should actually be investigating? And side point, Rifki, do you believe in aliens? Thanks for really getting to the crux of the issue, Uri. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first question of sort of like whether government should be funding something like this, I think the biggest problem with this story wasn't that the government was funding it. It was that it was a secret. It wasn't something that you or I could read about and talk to our senators or call our congresspeople and say, you know, I'm not comfortable with how my tax money is being spent right. or anything like well, that. Why are these things always secret? I mean, if, I, I just I don't know. That's what's actually. so odd. <laughs> Obviously, it has to be a secret. It, it's so bizarre that, you know, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, this is our money funding these things why are you making if you really think that there's value in it which you know make a case for it um the the deeper question which of course is what we really need to focus on here of whether ufos exist is actually not something that's ever really troubled me it's not something that really kept me up at night i'm I think naturally cynical. So even though this is, you know, a segment where we're really tackling the deep issues here, um, whenever I see anything that seems like a conspiracy theory, I assume it's a conspiracy theory. So I see UFOs and I'm like, eh, it's got to be fake. I see Bigfoot and I'm like, well, just eh, because it's, it's a be conspiracy fake. theory doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean they're not out to get you. It, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, actually, the the Department of Defense released uh, a formerly classified video, uh, and these are two Navy pilots um, in the air talking to each other about an unidentified flying object that they are seeing in the sky. Yeah, 
my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Cool thing, dude. You basically see a fuzzy object in the sky. It looks like a spaceship, I guess. A glowing light of some sort. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not it is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's a lunar thing, <laughs> it's rotating. It's rotating, they said. You can check out the link below in the description to watch the video yourself. Yeah, so, I mean, this is really sci-fi kind of stuff, and it's, like, just really interesting that this is released by the Department of Defense. I guess to justify, the way it seems to me is that the story broke, and in order to justify the $22 million that they spent on it, they released this video to show, look, this... There, this is something that needs to be uh, looked into, but it's just so bizarre. And also, it's just funny to me how whenever you see these kind of videos or photos, like, why does it always have to be blurry? Why can't there ever just be definitive, clear, you know, especially nowadays when our, tech, you know, video and imaging technology is so advanced. It really, it reminds me of um, the comedian Mitch Hedberg, who has uh, a routine about Bigfoot. I think Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. <laughs> not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. And that's extra scary to me. Because there's a large, out-of-focus monster roaming the countryside. Run, he's fuzzy. Get out of here. Gotta go. Yeah, so, I mean, they always have to be fuzzy, obviously. But, I mean, actually, Rifki, when you said that, I hadn't thought about that before. Like, why, why was this program secret? To me, it was just like, oh, of course it was secret because it's aliens. But, I mean, I guess that gets into the whole question of, like, if there are aliens and they came to Earth, why, do, why doesn't everybody know about it? Good like, thing you asked that in a yeshiva accent. <laughs> if aliens. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, do you think the existence of aliens is troubling from a religious perspective? So it's actually not really something that bothers me. I think, you know, the, the Torah is big and the Torah is multifaceted, right? Just coming, I'm coming from a very limited perspective of me. I am an Orthodox Jew. I believe that the Torah is given to us as sort of a guidebook, a way to live our lives. I think the Torah is incredibly valuable for me, Rifki Stern. I think it's valuable for the Jewish people and I think it's valuable for the world. Do I want to take it a step further and say it's also valuable for people on other worlds? Sure. Why not? Mm, so to what, me, this doesn't feel so yeah, deeply troubling. What, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Ari? Well, I just, I, I think about it in a theoretical way. It doesn't really feel practical to me yet. But we've just you know, I know, discovered but, this huge secret. I know, so. because it's like, if they're real and they want us to know about them, why don't we know about them? And if they're hiding from us, why are they hiding? It just, it doesn't, I mean, the, the easiest form of alien life for me to imagine is non-intelligent life, you know, like bacteria or plants mm -hmm. or something. To, for that to exist on another planet, to me, is not troubling at all, theologically. Um, I'm sure just like so many other things, if it turns out to be true, we'll figure out a way to of explain course. it and ma have it make sense with our belief system. And we will do that and other people will do that for their belief systems. And, you know, but so one of the things that I, that one of the thoughts that has entered my mind is, okay, if, if, alien, if intelligent life exists on other planets, what day of the week were they created on? What day of creation were they created on? You know, so if it's, and if it's the day, day four, when the sun and the moon and the stars were created and people weren't created until day six, does that mean that maybe they're more advanced than us because they were created two days earlier? Whatever a day is. Um, oh, definitely the opposite. I think the more advanced beings were created well, on later Well, that's days. true though, right. That's also true. So, But why, if there are... 
if there is intelligent life, right, and it's Ke'ilu human or Ke'ilu uh, animals, why wouldn't it have been, why wouldn't they be created on day six with us? Obviously, the creation story is very Earth-centric. Um, and so, in my mind, it, it's almost like maybe this is our story, but they have their story. Does that mean they would have a different Torah? Like, does that make the Torah not universal necessarily, just universal in our world? Right. So if you say that the Jews are the chosen people, does that mean God chose us out of all the people on earth or all the people in the universe? Well, if they're also people. Well, beings, maybe, maybe on another planet, God has a different chosen group. That would mean that there's a different Torah. Yeah, maybe there's a different Torah. So I think for me, theologically, that feels troubling because it feels like Torah is meant to be, right? I mean, I, ha- I, I haven't thought about this enough, but I'm ju- just thinking out loud here. It feels like Torah is really meant to be for the world. And yes, maybe I get more out of it in a certain way because I, I read it with a specific lens, but it's meant to be, I think, a guidebook for all of us, ultimately. And when I say all of us, that means people who were created but Salem Elkim, right? Would aliens, if aliens too have free choice and if aliens too can choose right or wrong and can create like God can and, you know, all of these things, are they not created but Salem Elohim? Did we define Salem Elohim, by the way? No. <laughs> Salem Elohim means... Image uh, of God. Yeah, that's the way we, we generally, we talk about man or, or person being created in the image of God. And yeah, the question of what that means is a, is a really important one, but I think ultimately it has to be a sort of spiritual thing, right? We're not created in a physical image of God because there is no physical image of God, you know, being created. So uh, there's, there's the idea of, you know, free will and making choice. There's the idea of creating the same way God created, we create. Um, but ultimately it's, it feels like it's a, it's a completely spiritual element and not a physical mm-hmm. one. Yeah, I think I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I think in terms of the question, would alien life challenge our religious belief system? I mean, I think in the same way with Galileo and the revelation that the Earth was not the center of the universe or even of the solar system, and people saw that as very troubling from a theological perspective. But m- most thinking religious people were able to get past that and not have that challenge or be problematic for them. I think to a larger degree, but still in the same idea, same vein, um, I think discovering alien life, if it would be discovered, could be, uh, or would at least people would attempt right. to uh, solve it in that way. I wonder if there are still people today who can't get behind this whole Galileo thing. I mean, well, it's funny that you say that because there actually is a movement of people today uh, who claim that the Earth is flat, and they're trying to prove it. There's one guy, there's an article that we'll link to below in the Washington Post uh, about this guy, Mike Hughes, who is building a spaceship, and he's going to go into space because he wants to take a picture of Earth yeah. to prove that it's flat. <laughs> yeah, I read about that. Kyrie Irving, and actually a few other basketball players, I think, actually recently came out with statements. Similarly, Kyrie Irving is a uh, all-star player for the Celtics, had been playing with LeBron in for the Cavs. Um, he also recently came out with some statements that, about the Earth being flat. And when people went crazy, he was like, guys, I know this science. Like, he, he it was it's actually very funny the way he reacts. I like Kyrie Irving. You know, he's a, he's a very good player. He's an interesting he Sounds he's intelligent also. Uh, okay, not a scientist. I mean, to be fair, right, if someone 
asked me to prove any sort of, you know, Galileo, is the earth flat, is the earth round, I wouldn't really have a great argument except for, but my science teachers told me. Buy a plane ticket, go to China, then get a ticket from there and go to Europe, and then from there come here and see if you, you know, ever fall off the edge or whatever. But then I guess... Imagine a full (laughs) rotation. Or like people who fly from San Francisco to Japan. It's pretty easy to go or around back to San, either way. Back yeah, to San Francisco. Exactly. Um, on the topic of government cover-ups of uh, aliens and stuff like that, I heard a really brilliant proof from uh, John Gabris, who has a podcast called High and Mighty that I listen Comedy to. Comedy genius. Who, and he also plays intern Gino on the Comedy Bang Bang podcast. He's so good. So he is brilliant. And he had a line which was, um, he can prove that the government is not covering up the existence of aliens in uh, Area 51, for example. And his proof is that if the government was covering up aliens and UFOs, the day Donald Trump got into office, he would have been privy to those secrets and those files. There is no possible way (laughs) that Donald Trump could get up over the last year in front of crowds and, and interviews and not just say in the middle of a speech about Mexico or, or uh, the Muslim ban, hey, guys, there's aliens. You know, you wouldn't believe it. He, he, I, he wouldn't be able to, to keep his mouth shut about that kind of uh, secret. John Gabrus, you're making a good point. So the fact that Trump has <laughs> not blurted out something about aliens proves that he was not made aware of anything about aliens. And if he's the president, he would have to know. That proves that if there is a conspiracy and a cover-up, it goes deeper than the government. It's something even bigger than that. Ooh, scary thought. Well, either way, this is a developing story that we are keeping a close watch on, and we will keep you informed the minute we have new information. Absolutely. And if you have any hot tips, please email us immediately, uh, photos, anything you have, at talkingtalklesspodcast at gmail.com. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Hanukkah. Nah, I'm just kidding. Hanukkah isn't even my favorite Jewish holiday. Of course, that's Thanksgiving. But let's talk about Hanukkah. Hanukkah really has two miracles that we celebrate today. There's the miracle of the war. The Judean army rose up against the mighty Syrian Greek army. And there's the spiritual victory. When the Jews came back into the temple and were able to relight the menorah, the oil miraculously lasted for eight crazy nights. Most of us have specific narratives that we're more drawn to. 
Early Zionists liked the miracle of the war. They connected to the idea of beating back a people and reclaiming a land and political control that they had lost. I know that I'm more interested in the miracle of the oil. I like the narrative of a subtle God having our back, giving us light, even when we can't see him. And while it makes sense, there's something about this idea that kind of leaves a bad taste in our mouths. Isn't it just a little slimy to read with the end in mind, so to speak, trying to find or create a narrative that fits with our own worldview? This doesn't end with Hanukkah, of course. Think of the capitalist reads of the Torah, or the communist ones. Think of the pro-democracy view, or the pro-monarchy view. Is one right and one wrong? Maybe. But more likely, the person sees what they want to see, and quotes the parts of Torah that fits into their own worldview. So what do you think, Uri? Is rewriting history or Torah to fit with the narrative that we like just a slimy pastime that we should cut out? Or is it more like a necessary evil, a way for us to relate to these events that happened so long ago? Well, I'm going to give a shocking viewpoint here and say that rewriting history is not a good thing. Wow. Hot take. And the thing is, I, I am sometimes tempted to do things along those lines if I see something in our tradition or in the Torah that kind of like meshes with my current viewpoint or let's say, quote unquote, agenda, whether it's about Israel or about uh, politics in general. But I'm very wary to do that because I think it really cheapens our tradition to make it out to be one particular thing in this particular time because you know what in 10 years we'll be talking about something else and if I insisted that this is what it's about now it can't also be about all those other things I'd rather it be just everything at once and not be tied down to any particular agenda or movement of the moment. So what do you do? I mean, I think I relate to, to that idea, but what do you do when you're reading the Torah and you find something that you really think is sort of deeply troubling or problematic? Right. Well, that's getting at a slightly different issue. I mean, the easy answer to that is just, you know, we have to take things in context. And it's it sounds like apologetics, and I guess to some extent it can be. The Torah has a particular sort of paradox embedded in it, right? Because it's both meant to be this sort of timeless book that I, you know, thousands of years after the Torah was given, am meant to be able to pick up this book and learn lessons from it. And yet it was also given to a particular people at a particular time. And that paradox, I think, makes it really difficult for us to really come to any strong understanding of this is what God said, and this is what he meant, and this is the timeless lesson. But also it was a particularly relevant thing for that time. And it's not exactly meant to be the same for us today. It's a hard thing to balance. Right. And getting back to the the topic at hand, I, when, when I think of this issue, I think of... Um, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, America's rabbi. Oh, wait, no, sorry. That's the other Rabbi Shmuley. And he, he said something last Purim that I found very troubling. Rabbi Yanklowitz wrote a Facebook post where he was referencing the verses in the Megillah that talk about um, in the victory over Haman, the Jews ended up slaughtering 75,000 non-Jews in the Persian Empire. Rabbi Shmuley writes, the only way I can morally justify reading Megillat Esther as a religious experience on Purim, given verses 8.11 and 9.16, is to assume the text is mere religious imagination or political satire, not history, emerging from a culture of powerlessness, just enough power to evoke such a violent imagination. Celebrating the story as actual history seems even more problematic today in an era of Jewish sovereignty with unprecedented military strength. How do others grapple with this? I mean, I think Rabbi Shmuley does a lot of amazing things. He also says a lot of things that 
make me roll my eyes. Okay, but here's the thing, Uri. I hear you when I when I read something like that and I cringe and I say like what a strong statement to make. The only way I can read it is X. But what he's fundamentally grappling with is there's something to him in the text that feels wrong, that feels yeah. like, and not just from like, oh, my sensibilities, like I'm in a PC culture, so it's bad to kill 75,000 people. There's something really painful. The puzzle doesn't say explicitly, these 75,000 people came out to attack, and so we fought them back right, and we're I relieved. think it's absurd that he's saying... It's impossible that the progressive Jews of Shushan would have done this. Therefore, I know for a fact that the story didn't happen. I, I hear you. But the fundamental question that I, may, I think kind of he should be asking is not, did this happen or not? I can't come to terms with the fact that it might have happened because that's too painful to read it that way. The fundamental question is, let's say that is what happened. Now what? Of course, now what do we it's do a with complicated it? issue. And I think I'm not shying away from it. I think it, it sounds pretty bad. We can... We can look for apologetics or we can say it was a different time and maybe even that was a shameful thing. I mean, I'm not sure why he feels the need to say the story didn't happen as opposed to criticizing the Jews of the time for doing such a terrible thing. He has no problem criticizing the Jews of Israel today who are doing terrible things to the Palestinians. So why can't he criticize the Jews of Shushan? I hear you. I mean, I think I, I, I agree with you that what he wrote feels a little bit, feels a little bit cringy, feels a little bit slimy, feels a little bit like rewriting history or taking something out of history for the sake of something being a little bit cleaner. Um, but I think the question that he's grappling with is admirable and one that I think that um, one that I think we, we need to do a little bit more often. Just because something happened in our history and we're celebrating the holiday doesn't mean it was done in the perfect way from the people's perspective from the jews perspective and let's say even you know with with abraham and the binding of isaac did he do the right thing by almost killing his son and waiting for the angel to stop him maybe maybe he should have stopped himself who knows like that doesn't i don't think that disproves right god that could it's interesting because Abraham. i think about that in terms of sort of like a modern jewish history and i think it's we want to create holidays and we want to idolize both people in the Torah, but also if think about, for example, Yom Yerushalayim or Yom Hatzmut, right? And obviously these are very sensitive things. And when we talk about something like Yom Yerushalayim, it's very hard for us in the same breath to say Yom Yerushalayim was an incredible thing and we are so happy that we have Jerusalem, but also the way we acted was maybe not fully appropriate in every situation. I think right. that's very hard for us modern people to say. Right. Well, I think... Because it's not too late for us to change things, right? For Hanukkah, I think it's a little bit easier to say, or for Purim, it's a little bit easier to say, you know what, maybe the people at that time made a mistake. But, you know, what are we going to do? Find the ancient Persians and apologize? Like, okay, that's obviously not realistic. But for Yom Rishalayim, it's a little bit easier to say what we did was painful, we went overboard, and we can kind of rectify it, well, so yeah. therefore we don't, You're you know. getting into another Let's issue. Let's get political. Like, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not about to say that the Six-Day War was a mistake, but we can save that for Yom Yerushalayim. Well, I'm not saying the Six-Day War is a mistake either. Okay. Well, I think But maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> I think, Tachlis, uh, what maybe we both agree on is that when it comes to Jewish holidays, when it comes to the Torah, it can be dangerous to appropriate aspects of those uh, of that tradition for our current agenda of today. But at the same time, it would be dishonest and not being true to our belief system and our, our religion to ignore parts of 
the history and of our tradition that is clearly there, whether we like it or not. And right. I, I actually think it's funny, like with Hanukkah, getting back to our current holiday, obviously the military victory is such a huge part of it, whether or not you want to focus on that versus the oil. And it's funny to me how like the most devout Jews uh, you know, like the, the yeshivish and Haredi community in Israel is on the one hand celebrating this military victory that the Jews had, but on the other hand, protesting their uh, conscription into the army. It's like, who do they, you know, Yehuda Maccabee was like this devout Talmud Chacham, let's say, you know, Torah scholar, but he was also a fighter and a warrior. It's like, who do they think was serving then in the army and who's supposed to serve now for the for the Jewish people? I just right. think that's interesting. Yeah, to and think in the about. same breath, you have the counter argument, right? Not counter arguments, the same it's the same argument about people who are much more assimilated and secular Jews today who really aren't involved so much in Jewish holidays, but they're very involved in Hanukkah. They're very proud of lighting their menorah. Um, but at the same time, part of the, the, the message of Hanukkah, in addition to the military victory, was this victory over assimilation, over the Syrian Greeks who really tried to Hellenize them. And and we, we resisted that. And it's funny that so many much more, quote unquote, assimilated Jews really celebrate Hanukkah and do not celebrate some of the, the other holidays. Yeah, I think, you know, to close off this segment on a positive note, I'll say that I do think that Judaism is such a rich and deep tradition that there is enough in it for anyone to find something to grasp onto and to be meaningful to them. Um, and I, at the end of the day, think that's a pretty cool thing. Agree. Happy Hanukkah, Ari. Happy Hanukkah, Rifki, and Merry Christmas. I really love that song. Rifki, are you a Maccabees fan? You know, I think their music's excellent. Very catchy. I'm really into it. But honestly, I watch the videos and I'm embarrassed. Like, they couldn't hire, like, a serious production studio. Well, that actually brings us to our sponsor, Drive-In Productions. Maccabees, if you're listening and you want to take your videos to the next level, give them a call. You will not be disappointed. And that's our show. Thank you all so much for listening. As usual, we love to hear ideas and thoughts, feedback. Please email us at talkingtalklistpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like listening, please rate and review us on iTunes. Just give us five stars and tell us how amazing we are. Or as John Gabris of High and Mighty likes to say, rate us five stars and roast us in the comments and we will read it on air. We will, I promise. <laughs> We'd like to thank the band Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They give us the music at the beginning and the end of our show. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.